1: Be heard and be understood. It's a show where men can be men. Now here's the coach who has your back, Linda Gross. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Today we're going to be talking about the famous court case where the mother wanted to transition one of her sons into being a girl. And she did this by sending him to school with a dress on And she claims that the young boy wanted to be called by a feminine name. I think it was Lula. And so, anyway, we're going to talk a little bit about this case. We really appreciate your joining our show today. I'm going to give our listeners a little slice of what's going on with the case itself, and then we'll dive in to dissect what's going on. All right. So... The attorney on the case says, well, you've heard of people who can't agree if the sky is blue. These parents can't even agree if their child is a boy or a girl. And this comes from attorney Logan Ordinale, the lawyer for Jeff Younger, the husband, the dad in this case, in his concluding remarks to the jury in a drawn-out custody battle. For the past week or so, the jurors have been sitting through a family court trial between the parents who argued over whether their seven-year-old son, James, has gender dysphoria, and if so, whether they should show parental love to him by taking an approach of affirmation or one of watchful waiting. So let's hop in, Dr. Nathanson, and tell us your take on the case. I know a a lot has happened since that original trial. In fact, the uh, judge finally, even though the jury ruled in the mother's favor, the mother's favor meaning that she could make these court decisions just by herself, she didn't need spousal approval. Since then, of course, the father has gone to court and fought it, and the judge ruled in the father's favor. So I think that where it stands now is neither party can make a decision without the other person's approval, which is how it should have been in the first place. Right. tell us your take on this case. How did we even get to a situation where 12 jurors said, oh, yes, one party is good enough to make this lifelong decision on the boy's gender?
0: Well, I can't get into the mind of anybody on the jury. All I can say is that that idea that you just mentioned is something that in some circles would be considered politically correct for several reasons. First of all, one reason is that there are some people who believe that mothers should always trump the fathers because mothers are better parents. So that's one thing. The other thing is simply that the trans movement has become quite politically powerful And so their argument is that if anybody so much as questions what they believe about identity, that's tantamount to being hostile and therefore creating a hateful environment. I don't agree with that, but that's a common point of view. Yes. The other factor is, and probably in some ways it's even more important, although it seems indirect, but one problem here is the denial of science. I could have used the word common sense, but I don't want to use that word. I would say it's a a denial of scientific consensus. Okay, so if you have a Y chromosome in every cell of your body, you are male. That's it. There's no argument there. So the argument shifts not to sex, which is biologically determined, but to what is now known as gender, which is differentiated from sex by being it's assumed that gender is simply a a product of culture and that you can change culture any way you like and therefore Mm -hmm. why not have transgendered people now all of this is not specifically about children young children who have what's known as gender dysphoria these are a very very tiny segment of the population who for whatever reason and it could be biological in a way it could involve the length of time that a fetus is bathed in the hormones, maternal hormones, which could have some effect on its, on the level of testosterone, and that in turn could have an effect on the way people think of themselves, their personal identity. But it's a very infrequent phenomenon. it's infrequent in the same way that hermaphrodites who have both genitalia are very, very rare It, it happens, it exists, but it's very rare. Right. So, but what's happening now is that in order to make life better, presumably, for the tiny minority that have gender dysphoria, they want to be able to tell all people how gender identity is formed. In other words, they're taking an exceptional case and making a general rule out of it. So when you have parents, such as the mother in this case, who insist on that their child is dysphoric, and let's not even bring in the question now whether the child actually believes this or not, because there's obviously doubt about that. He, he tells his father that he wants to be a boy and is a boy. He tells the mother that he wants to be a girl and is a girl. But it's become a... Polit- in other words, these things, this is the weaponization of biology. So these are some of the problems that are involved. And there are more problems, more, because first of all, the trans movement is getting into trouble with feminists because feminists claim that they would be taken advantage of in an athletic team, for example, if you have people on your team who are genetically male and they have the bodies of males, regardless of what they consider their gender identity. So Some people call themselves women, they appear on women's teams, but of course they outperform every woman on the team because they have the bodies of men. So feminists have a problem there, and a worse problem is that they're afraid of women in prison, for example. They don't want men who claim to be women in women's prisons because they're likely to rape women. Right. How likely this is, I don't know. The feminist argument is now against trans. So this is one manifestation of a much larger problem, and that's called identity politics. Because identity politics is based on the idea that your identity is whatever you say it is. And if you change it tomorrow, that's okay too. But they reject the idea that biology, science, chromosomes have anything to do with gender identity. It's irrelevant, they say. Now, that's a serious problem for those of us who think that science should take precedence. And all of this, all of identity politics in turn, is the product, the ultimate product of romanticism. We've had a battle between romanticism and the Enlightenment for about 200 years, and the pendulum keeps going back and forth. But right now, we're at the point where Romanticism is in high gear, and romanticism is something that has always glorified emotion at the expense of reason. Romanticism began as a reaction against rationalism in the eighteenth century. These are all parts of the larger context of this. Okay, so I don't wanna be in a position of putting words into the mouth of a child. I don't know anything about this child except that the parents can't agree over something that should be Obvious to both
1: right, so one way to handle it would be to not leave it to somebody else, in other words, not leave this decision, this very important decision to the parents. Just wait until the child is an adult, and then he or she can make his own decision or her own decision on what gender do they identify with. Now, granted, they're going to have to go through puberty if it's done that way, but at least it gives the person a direct shot and a voice in the outcome of what happens to their body and to their social interactions. That would be one way to handle it.
0: Yes, and in fact, that way, the child would at least have puberty, which would not be the case if they have medical interventions and hormone treatments that disrupts the whole process of adolescence and puberty. So of course, give the child time to make a decision as an adult. Otherwise you're engaging in what I would call child abuse.
1: Yes, absolutely. So another And way not only
0: child it. abuse, but not only child yeah. abuse, but a particular kind and that is because the whole trans movement basically is a social experiment. And in this case they're experimenting on children who cannot, by definition, give their informed consent.
1: Right. Another way to handle it is I didn't see any sort of psychological testing on the mother, meaning that does she have an ulterior motive? Is she psychologically sound to make these decisions, et cetera, et cetera? And also any testing on the boy himself. I mean, it just went to court. The jury said yes, and that was the end of that. I just feel that that's such an irresponsible way to handle it for something that is going to affect him the rest of his life. Meaning, let's say she was able to transition him, and let's say he wakes up one day at age 28 and realizes, no, Mom, I'm still a boy. I want to be a boy. Well, at that point, the damage is already done because he's already undergone the hormone therapy to reverse the puberty. So, oof. I mean, it's almost like committing murder. It's like gender identity murder on this person.
0: It's very disturbing, partly because yet another factor involved here is the possibility that some children who have sexual dysphoria would grow up to be gay. Without any intervention, they would simply be gay. So then the question is, why is it more acceptable for some parents have children who are transgendered than to simply have a gay child it doesn't really make a lot of sense but let me give you an example I'm gay I had symptoms I think as a child that could have been interpreted today as being transgender Mm -hmm. although I I never actually that didn't apply to me but it could have been applied by experts today They could have intervened. They could have changed my body against my will. They could have done all sorts of things. And I'm Mm -hmm. glad they didn't. Right.
1: And haven't there been a number of cases where the young people have been transgendered and at a later point in time they regret it or they didn't want it or it wasn't, you know, they wanted to go back to their original biological designation. Yes. So, not to mention that there's probably like medical issues. I mean, much like taking any kind of drug, you might have side effects from the drug. Yes, it might might cure problem A, but then it might cause problem B, C, and D. Well, I'm exactly. sure this is no different. It's not exempt. So there have been cases now where it's been a number of years since that hormonal transition, and they're not liking it. They're wishing that they never had undergone such therapy.
0: Yes, all these things are possible.
1: Yeah. If you've just joined us, you're currently listening to the Men's Advocate Show with me, your host, Linda Gross. Call us today on this topic. We're talking about Daddy, Mommy Tells Me I'm a Girl. This is a very famous court case where the mom was granted permission by the jury to go ahead and transition her son without the ex-husband's permission. The ex-husband has, at a later point in time, gone to trial himself and asked the judge for intervention. The judge did intervene, and now I think the ruling is it needs both parties for her to go to the next step, which is she wants to do hormonal transitioning and stave off puberty. So I guess that's been put on ice. The matter certainly isn't over. The case still could go either way, and that's what we're discussing. So please call in on this topic. Our phone number is 323 Six four two one six seven seven. Again, that number is three two three six four two one six seven seven. And if you're listening live, you can go to our chat line, and that is the same radio show. Login blogtalkradio.com, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Gross Forward slash D T Linda Gross. All right, so we are joined today by our esteemed guest, Dr. Paul Nathanson, who is a gender relations researcher at McGill University, and his area of expertise is misandry, which he claims is a form of prejudice and discrimination against men and boys that have become cemented in north american culture by the way just to clarify that word misandry it is a dislike or contempt for or an ingrained prejudice against men or the male sex so that's what we're talking about please join our show today all right so what do you think the mother is getting out of this? I mean, is it sort of like, oh, look at the attention I'm getting or look at how well I'm going to be liked, or this is a popular notion that I can expand on? Or is she really just a genuine mother that has concerns for her son and wants to do right by her son? I mean, what do you think the mother's motive in this case is?
0: Well, I've never met her. I can't I can't say you can suspect all sorts of things, but i can't <laughs> I can't speak yeah. for her i don't it looks very suspicious, but i um I don't know, yeah, and it doesn't really matter it doesn't really matter because whatever her motive, she's still experimenting on a child, yeah,
1: and if there needs to be a consequence one day, I don't really see what could make up for law time. In the young boy's body, you can't reverse this process once it's done. If she only takes it so far as, okay, we're calling her Lola and we're putting a dress on her, okay, that's one thing. But the hormonal reversal and stoppage, I mean, there's no backing out of that. Pretty final. So what should parents do, especially parents who are divorced parents that might not have full custody of their children. It's the dad in this case. Again, the the two of them are divorced. I I think his name is Jeff Younger. What would you advise the non-custodial parent to do in these sorts of cases? As I mentioned, this particular case is nowhere near over. And in order for it to be over, I don't think Jeff Younger has the financial means to really go to battle with her.
0: Yes. I mean, the only thing you can do is what he has done. He's gone to court. Right. All of these social experiments ultimately have to be decided in court. Right. I mean, we've had all these battles over Me Too and uh, bypassing the courts as vigilantes, but there are people who go to court and sue, and that's the only way to win, if not for mm-hmm. yourself and for society. That's just the way this world works and it's not a good system. You shouldn't have to go to court, for, but you do. Right.
1: And because this is such a new area of the law, I think when the jurors are rendering a verdict, they are not given enough information on what they're even voting on. I mean, there should be certain standards, like I was saying. Maybe the parent who is making the accusation has to go through psychological testing or some sort of time period or something or another, as well as the child in question. Yeah, that's a good idea, actually. Yeah, I don't think the jurors are given any sort of instruction on what are you voting on. In other trials, if you're voting on whether it's first-degree murder or second-degree murder or manslaughter, the case law is very specific for you to vote second-degree murder, for example. Here are the rules. I'm sure it's pages and pages Mm. worth of stuff. Whereas I think in these types of cases, because they're so new, I don't think there's any guidelines like that at all.
0: Well, once again, we don't know. I don't know what the guy, what, the how the case was handled or what the jurors were asked to read or listen to. I have to assume yeah. that they were given some kind of guidance, but I don't know what that guidance was.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. So what about the naysayer who says, okay, Dr. Nathanson, maybe in the same vein, don't you think that his gender preferences should be expressed through an authority figure like his mother, who can speak up, where perhaps the young boy can't speak up. So if she's allowed to speak up on behalf of his gender preferences, much like you were able to speak up on sexual preferences, shouldn't it be the same thing? I mean, this is what a possible naysayer might say. How would you respond to that person?
0: Well, if a child tells the parents, I'm gay, the parents don't have to do anything. If you tell your parents, I need a sex change operation, then um, that involves action and intervention. And at that point, I think there needs to be some safety mechanism. Frankly, I don't see why any action should be allowed before a child is of age.
1: Right. If a child at age 12, for example, wants to drive a car, can he or she physically drive a car? Of course course they can i mean actually some kids are really tall they could probably even reach the pedals and whatever but just because they can drive that car doesn't mean it's safe for him or herself or safe for other motorists or pedestrians so yes
0: and, and that's the um that's the argument that people have used about technology for example just because we can do something does not necessarily mean that it's a good thing to do
1: right so what do you think about now we're seeing more and more of these children who are not having a healthy or positive identity and there are growing trends in the following areas maybe the child is giving up which translates to mean he he or she is dropping out of school or society or perhaps even life itself there's a lot of young children now that they're just killing themselves because they are so so confused Maybe their body is telling them one thing, society is telling them something else, maybe the parents are telling them a third thing, and all kinds of mayhem is happening in that poor little mind and body. And that's um,
0: particularly true of boys.
1: And why do you think the boys are affected quite a bit
0: more? Well, for I mean, one I agree thing, with you. there is an... A whole lot of negativity that comes out in everything from newspapers and, and textbooks to movies, commercials. Every day, boys live in a world which is hostile to them. At the very best, they're told, well, you're different from women. And uh, maybe at some evolutionary period in the past, there was some use for you, but, there's, but that's different now. And uh, women can do everything that men can do. And therefore, you cannot have a distinctive identity at all and that is what i think drives some people to suicide because nobody can live without an identity better to have a negative right. identity than a than none at all
1: right and i think men did have a place and purpose i think in recent years i mean that's pretty much been <laughs> buried and that's why i like to be a voice for men because there aren't too many people that are speaking up on behalf of men and men's issues and men's health issues mental and otherwise so I think it's um, especially
0: good that you're a woman and can do that because you have a little more it's a little easier for you to get permission to say anything than men
1: Right. If men were to talk about these subjects, I think they would get their head bitten off or worse. Whereas I, of course, I get my head bitten off too, but I don't care because I feel that there is some sort of justice and I have to stand up for what is right. It's not that I'm pro-men or pro-women. I want both sexes to be the best and the most powerful they can be. But I don't like injustice. I don't like men Wrongly accused of certain Things like right now in our culture uh, I'm sure it's happening in Canada too But men are often accused of Rape especially in colleges and so Forth when that's not the Case that's not the case at all I mean are you supposed to like wear a body Cam on you every time you have sex With somebody I mean it's ridiculous These girls go in there and they're Consensual at the get-go And then they think about it the next Day or two weeks later or they talk To their girlfriend or their mom or whatever and then they decide, oh, no, this was not a smart thing to do, and they call rape days or weeks or months later.
0: Or That's years. That's not
1: right. Or years, right. Why are they allowed to do that? I mean, it's uh, attention-magneting at its finest. <laughs>
0: well, you, <laughs> you know, know we're, they, living, we're living in a period yeah. that would be called, I think it should be called, a moral panic. And moral panic yeah. emerge from time to time, more and more often, in fact, lately, whenever people, whenever there's a, a a source of anxiety that they can't easily pin on anybody, and so they choose a target. And it might not be for the same, you, your anxiety might be for all sorts of reasons. It might be because there's not enough uh, food in the food supply. It might be because of menacing people overseas with their nuclear weapons. Whatever it is, whatever the source of anxiety it gets translated into a a more manageable form. Well, we don't know what the Soviets are doing with their nuclear bombs, but we do know that our next-door neighbor might molest our child. So they're trying to gain control over a situation in which they have very little control. And so you get targeting of victims, lack of due process, anonymous accusations. All of these things are characteristic of of moral panics. Mm -hmm. And we've had several in. Notorious ones in history. I mean, one of the more obvious ones would be the Salem Witch Trials. But then we had the mm-hmm. McCarthy hearings in the 50s, and we had, sure. the, we had the moral panic more recently over repressed memory syndrome, which turned out to be false memory syndrome. And all of these movements had powerful supporters who were promoting them. For whatever reason, mm-hmm. uh, the repressed memory syndrome would have been impossible without the collusion of psychologists. They collaborated in creating this thing called false memory syndrome, now called false memory syndrome. But before, Mm -hmm. when that was just beginning, you had advice books which said, if you think that you were molested as a child, you probably were. Now, what kind of advice is that?
1: Yeah, that's almost the equivalent of saying if you had a bad dream, then when you woke up, really really the dream was true. Well, not necessarily, not in all cases. Not necessarily.
0: So we're living in really weird times. And I don't know that it's a good idea to obsess about the trans phenomenon in particular, although, as I've just said, that there are some real problems there. But as part of a much larger problem, all of society is becoming so polarized that people of different political beliefs can no longer discuss anything with each other. Uh, you see it at all levels of society. polarization fragmentation, the conspiracy theory of history. After all, if there is a problem in the world, it must be somebody's fault, and therefore somebody has been conspiring against us. This is all part of my own field of research has been studying feminism as a source Mm -hmm. of misandry, and that's been going on now for 40 years not the early right. feminists not the early feminists but by the certainly by the 80s and even by the 70s in fact in 1975 it was Susan Brownmiller in against our will who coined the term rape culture mm-hmm. and that sort of you didn't hear about that too much for about 20 years and then about 10 years ago it suddenly revived and went viral and at first it was only on campuses and now it's everywhere
1: Yeah, it really is. When do you think men lost their place in this world? I mean, you're right. We are such a society today of hating on men and that men have no place and guys are idiots and cavemen and all this negative terminology. When and why do you think this started?
0: Well, first of all, I think men and women have probably had differences and difficulties since time began because men and women are, in some ways, different. Not in all ways, not in most ways, but in some ways. But I think that the real catalyst, historically, was something that I don't hear much talk about, but it was, in fact, an unprecedented event in all of human history, and that was the advent of the birth control pill and the so-called sexual revolution. For the first time in all of human history, sexual activity could be separated between reproductive and recreational sex. That had never, never happened, and we're still trying to figure out what that means. The first thing it meant in the 60s was the idea that all traditions were irrelevant, that we could build a new world simply by loving each other, whatever that meant. But human nature has proved difficult in that way because freedom meant different things to men and women, and women eventually decided, look, this isn't benefiting us. All the sexual revolution did was it empowered men to expect the same kind of sexuality from us that they expect from themselves. And that just didn't work. It's not true. Women have their own rationale for sexual behavior. So I think that that revolution really caused everything to be up for grabs. And it was a time of experimentation, social experimentation, experimentation with drugs, reaction against any kind of tradition, whether it was religious or secular or political. So we're still dealing with that now. And that's the answer I would have to give.
1: I fully agree with you. I talk about that point in time again and again on my show, but I think that's when it really started as well. There's I more. think men, of course, men lost their place. Like you say, everything was clear. The two genders had their roles. Dad went to work, and that was his role was to bring home the bacon. And mom stayed home with the kids and did the grocery shopping and cleaning and made dinner. Everybody had a role. So when you take that away by the invention of the birth control, now she could delay getting pregnant and then continue on with college or start a career or go to work or have a job. So over time, over the decades, men's position was less and less clear.
0: Well, yes, there's more involved. One source of the difficulty for men in modern times has nothing to do with feminism. It has to do with the ability of men to have a healthy identity. Now, to have a healthy identity as a man or a woman means, at the very least, being able to make at least one contribution to society that is distinctive, necessary, and publicly valued. Now, in the past, among the various things that men could do to satisfy that condition, and therefore have a healthy masculine identity, was to become a father. And I still think that the one thing that is left for men, because women are doing everything else, women are going to work, they're doing whatever they want, they're going into the army, the one thing that women cannot yet do is become fathers, which means fatherhood is a distinctive and necessary feature of manhood, and therefore the source of a, a healthy identity. Now, the problem with fatherhood is that by this time, many people do not believe anymore that there's any difference between fathers and mothers, and therefore, why shouldn't mothers become fathers too? And that led the way to gay marriage, for example, so children can have two mothers or two fathers, but they don't necessarily need both mothers and fathers. That's a new idea. Right. reject that idea. I don't think that's true. When I ask people, young people, what they think fatherhood is, they usually say something like, oh, fatherhood is going to be fun. I'm going to do the diapering and and the cleaning and uh, the roughhouse games. And well, you know what? That isn't the distinctive feature of fatherhood. Mothers can do the same thing. What mothers do that fathers don't do is They give a child the sense of unconditional love, okay? Mm -hmm. Because that really comes from the fact that mothers are with their children, their infants, much more often than fathers are. And so infants need this sense of unconditional love. But as children grow older, they need something else, and that's earned respect. Mm -hmm. And that is something that fathers have given their children. And that's not something that mothers can do. In theory, mothers could do that. It's just that to do that, mothers would have to be able to withdraw somewhat from the intimacy of the mother-child relationship. Because earned respect is about asking children to go off and prove themselves to demonstrate their skills. It's not about protecting them, and it's not about giving them emotional care. It's about this thing called earning the respect of others in order to live in the larger world. Now, if you don't make that distinction, if you think that mothers and fathers are interchangeable, then men have no possibility of forming a healthy identity. And children, I think, will be the losers because they will not have fathers, as many of them don't now have fathers.
1: Right. I think that independent respect is very, very difficult. That concept is very difficult for a mother because her first instinct is to protect the child and is to mother and nest and nurture that child, which, which are all good qualities when the boy is young, say maybe when the boy is under 10 years old, for example. Or a girl. But, yeah, or a girl. I think later when you get to the age of you want that child to have that independent respect, that distance, that earning, maybe from the ages of 18 to 25, then it's a whole nother ball game Because men are solid, the fathers are solid in why they're doing what they're doing because they've done it for thousands of years, right? So they don't feel insecure about that, whereas a woman well, may feel insecure to step back to that degree.
0: Actually, I think fathers do feel insecure, because even though fatherhood has been going on for, you know, 100,000 years in humans, Mm -hmm. or more, depending on how you date the origin of the species, that learning, that cultured learning about how to be a father, and it is culture, it's not something that is genetically determined, you have to learn how to be a father, or a mother, but Mm -hmm. that can be lost in a generation or two. It's easy to lose it. It's not something that we can take for granted. Culture must support fatherhood and motherhood. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I, I agree. Uh, and I think it's not, not necessarily a natural, inherent trait. It's sort of like you have to learn to be a father or mother, to be a good one.
0: Uh, what, well, what nature provides? It provides the, the foundation, the basis the biological ability to do this or that function. But the ways in which the function is done varies from one culture to another. I mean, I grew up in a Jewish home, and Jewish notions of fatherhood are not identical to the notions of, uh, let's say, a Hindu or a Christian. There's a different tradition, and the tradition has all sorts of symbolic and ritual ways of affirming a particular notion of fatherhood or motherhood. I'm not arguing on the sense of biological determinism or cultural determinism. Being human means to live in both culture and nature. You can't separate them, or else you wouldn't have a human. You'd have an organism, but not a human organism. So we need both, and we have to respect both. And respecting both would not include surgically removing somebody's genitals. That's not respecting a body.
1: Yeah, At the very least, it's a very self-centered approach. I mean, you think you're doing good, but really, what are your motives for doing such an action?
0: Well, uh, I find that the motives behind some of the trans people that I have read or heard is Mm -hmm. probably very similar to the motivations of some gay advocates of gay marriage. These movements are about the rights of adults, primarily. They may have effects on children, especially in the trans case, but they're basically about adults, about the adult desire to have every conceivable choice. If you have choices, you have power, and that is considered a desirable thing today. But we don't have every choice. Some choices are, are constrained. They're constrained by the fact that we live in a, a larger society with other people's feelings and needs to consider. So we have legal and moral systems that come between us and complete freedom. There's no such thing as total freedom. Human mm-hmm. beings are p- human beings are never autonomous. We are by definition interdependent. We depend on each other, and that means that men and women depend on each other, adults and children. We're not isolated units.
1: Right. It might be a little bit too early to assess this, but where do you think we're going here societally? I mean, do you think that we're just really going in the direction of annihilation of men? I mean, are men just going to become sperm banks and women go check out sperm locker number 4022 to check out sperm when they want to pop out a kid and that's the end of that? I mean, is that where we're going? Or is it a situation We're already where... there.
0: We're already there. <laughs>
1: Or is it a situation where sometimes in society, maybe the pendulum has swung too far? But don't worry, Linda and Dr. Nathanson, the pendulum will swing back to the middle, so don't freak out over this. Yeah, it's well, I've heard far. that. Yeah, but it's going to go. I, I've
0: heard that. I, I'm not, uh, I'm, I have to admit that I'm pessimistic rather than optimistic. There are too many signs of what academics call deconstruction of this or that feature of society. It extends, it's in every sphere, it's not just in gender relations. We have all these people who believe that Western civilization is evil and must be deconstructed so that we can start from scratch. That's a very serious problem. If we have nothing to prevent complete deconstruction, dissolution, of society, then I don't know how I can have anything other than a bleak prognosis. Yeah. Now, it's true, historically, some societies have turned around, and sometimes they get a, a hundred, two hundred years of respite, and then it starts again. Some societies are overtaken by others, but some societies collapse from within. I mean, look what happened to the Soviet Union. Right. There's no guarantee, no society has ever endured forever. I personally think that Western civilization is so rich that we have enough capital to continue for a while, but we really, have to, we really have to watch this carefully and return to some sense that our civilization is worthy and noble and honorable. No matter how many times we fail to meet its own standard, we still believe that it's worth continuing. But once that hope is gone... Once you really believe that, well, let's have open borders, doesn't matter who's here, who's there, that's a big problem. People don't think about it. They think, oh, well, we're going to be compassionate. Why should anybody not have the right to live wherever he or she wants to live? But, of course, everything has a price. And the price of that kind of compassion is withdrawing compassion for the people who are already here. Right. There's a price for everything.
1: Exactly. And opening up the borders, guess what? The middle-class citizens are going to pay for all of that. We barely can afford to pay for our own households, let alone opening up the borders.
0: Sitting here in Canada and watching all these presidential shenanigans going on in the state. Yeah. And I find it profoundly disturbing. Not that no, we're any horrible, better.
1: Horrible,
0: we're not in any better shape in Canada.
1: <laughs> you didn't get the exempt card, huh?
0: Yeah, no. no. It's just that America, frankly, matters more. It has a, a much deeper imprint on the lives of all of us. So I can't help wondering what is going to happen. But when I, some of the presidential candidates are really talking about fairy tales.
1: Yeah. It sounds good, and I guess it will get a lot of votes, but can they put into action what they're talking about? It seems like they're not accountable. Once they're in office, most of them don't do even half the things that they talked about to get those votes. It's just a very corrupt system.
0: It is. I say that, but I say it with a grieving heart. I don't say that because I wish America bad luck or unhappiness or revenge or what have you. Well, I have a lot of respect for what Americans have tried to do in this world, and it bothers me that people are so eager to tear it down.
1: Very much so. By the way, uh, my audience, if you've just joined us, we're in our final moments here of the Men's Advocate Show. We're talking about Daddy, Mommy Tells Me I'm a Girl. We'll talk today about the uh, famous court case where the mom goes to court and wants to impose transitioning her son. She wants to put dresses on him. She claims that the boy wants to be called by a feminine name by Lula and more. He's seven years old now, but he's heading off into puberty and she wants to also control hormones that will stop or divert the normal puberty actions. The dad has gone to court. He has asked the judge to step in. The judge did step in, and so the judge now has a ruling that if she wants to do any of these things, she also does need the uh, dad's permission. But the court case is nowhere near being over, and this still could very much go in one direction or another. So that's what we're talking about. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Paul Nathanson. By the way, he's an author of several books. Go ahead and check out his book, Reading Misandry. And don't worry, I'll put all the links on the various websites, so you can just click okay. on it and go. And you've got several more books also on this topic, Legalizing, Replacing, and Sanctifying Misandry. I just wanted to bring up really quickly your upcoming book, Transcending Misandry, Is there a point in time that we can get past that social polarization that's now in existence between men and women?
0: Well, I don't have a crystal ball. I find it hard to see beyond this moment in time. There are too many things cascading. Every time I open the TV, I hear more grotesque things happening. So. Yeah. In theory, yes, everything changes. Nothing stays the same. But what replaces what we've got now is another matter. I'm not optimistic, but I do believe that if there is any possibility of change for the better, it would have to be in the context of intersexual dialogue. I'm talking only about gender relations. Intersexual dialogue is something that my co-author Catherine Young and I originally were did research on because that was about interreligious dialogue. We're applying the notion of dialogue that we developed there in connection with men and women, and it's mm-hmm. a very rigorous discipline. It's not just getting together in church basements and complimenting each other. It means actually deeply listening to the other and not thinking that I know about them, even without listening to them. And it's about empathy. It's a very difficult thing, but I can't see how we could ever get past this impasse unless we have men and women deeply committed to listening to each other with empathy.
1: And that's so hard to do, ever so hard to do, especially when the two people are divorced and maybe one parent doesn't even have part-time custody, let alone full-time custody. So it's a really, really hard topic. But I agree with you. It has to be a, a grassroots approach. I call it machinery whatever the socio economic machinery is, the media, the social media and the regular media, they're shoving all these notions down our throat and that's a big giant train that's coming down the track. So to counterbalance that, it's gotta start in your own home.
0: Yes. I when just want to I would just want to yeah. add to that that when I talk about dialogue, I'm not referring only to individuals. I'm talking about two communities in conflict who need to have this dialogue and so it can take many forms one form is just two individuals having a argument according to rules but to have a real effect on society it's got to be more than individual it has to be people representing population segments such as men and women yeah and it involves Good. knowledge It's not just having goodwill. You have to have knowledge. You have to know the history of, let's say, men and women in this case. Now, I spent a lot of time reading feminist history books, and it's a very disturbing thing how much they leave out of history. They leave out things they don't like. Right. And they add things that they do like, such as all of history is a titanic conspiracy of men to oppress women. That's a pretty standard feminist notion of history. And it's wrong.
1: It is wrong, but it makes their dialogue seem better, more palatable. It's
0: wrong intellectually but, and scientifically yes. because there's no evidence of that, but it's also wrong morally.
1: Yes. Agreed. All right, Dr. Nathanson, I want to thank you very much for coming on the program today. Just in our last few seconds here, we have about 20 seconds. If there's anything that you would like to say, closing out the topic, or anything you'd like to promote or talk about, now would be the time. Go ahead. Uh,
0: We just came out of Veterans Day in the States, Memorial Day, Remembrance Day in Canada. Now, I can't remember the last time I watched a commemoration ceremony in which the speaker did not say, men and women who fought. Now, Mm -hmm. historically, women did not fight. We're not allowed to fight. They had other connections with armed forces, but they did not fight. Now, when you say today... You remember all the men and women who fought and died. That's a distortion of history. Yes. Men were forced to fight. It was illegal not to fight. And women were prevented from fighting. Now that's just historical information that we need. Mhm.
1: I got you and I follow and I agree with you. So there needs uh, to be a distinction about, there. I'm not talking about I'm not
0: I'm not trying to say that because men fought, therefore they have some kind of glory. Conscription is intimidation by the state. That's not voluntary. Yeah. Why are we talking about men who sacrificed themselves? They didn't for the most part. Some of them did so voluntarily, but most of them were sacrificed by the state. hmm
1: Yeah. No, thanks. thanks for that clarification. And yes, I do agree with you. Thank you for bringing up that point. Thanks, everybody, for listening to our program today. We are usually here each and every Tuesday, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and we will catch you next week on the Men's Advocate Show. Thank you, Dr. Natanson, and we will uh, talk to you again soon.
0: Yes, I hope you do. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you.